Okay. Um, now that it's noon, um, just like to take a moment to welcome everyone who's come here and is present in the room, but also everyone who's watching remotely um, to listen to Dr. David Scher speak um, to get this uh, conflict of interest stuff out of the way. Um, David does have financial interest over the past 12 months, which is Equity and Hercules Pharmaceuticals, a company he co-founded and has licensed AHR inhibitors. Um, Alan Hartford and course director for the CME activity reports that his relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of his presentation through peer review. And he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. Um, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. No. Um, so it's my very great pleasure and privilege to introduce Dr. Scher. Um, and what I learned last night is he's from Worcester. No. Uh, I believe I, I believe I captured it there. Uh, <laughs> and he did his um, undergraduate degree at Brandeis University and then proceeded to do his PhD in microbiology at Cornell, where he um, wrote his thesis on the functional development of B lymphocytes. Um, he did his postdoc at Harvard with um, Baruch Bedesarov, who was a Nobel laureate for the discovery of um, the MHC. Um, following that, he was at Harvard as an instructor and a professor in pathology, um, and then ultimately landed at Boston University, where he continues to work and teach um, in the departments of environmental health um, and the pathology and laboratory at the um, BU School of Medicine. Um, he has published extensively and contributed to the knowledge base on um, in immunology, but has also done a lot of work um, illuminating our understanding of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which he's going to talk about more today. Um, and those two things um, have a lot of intersections, which I'm sure he's going to speak about. Um, and so he's a member of several training programs at BU, has mentored extensively um, at every level from what I've seen. And from my experience with him, I can imagine that was he was probably a really great mentor, um, and that his students have all gone on to be very successful. Um, he's also the director of the BU Superfund Research Program, um, and I think we're going to have a really nice time listening to him speak today, and so I will let him get started. <laughs> well, <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Rojas. It was a very generous introduction. My father would have appreciated that, and my mother would have believed it all. So <laughs> thanks so much. Uh, first, I also want to thank uh, Craig Tomlinson and the Cancer Center for having me down here. It's a privilege to come down here and talk to people. I've had a great time, and especially giving me the opportunity to sit on the defense committee for Dr. Rojas yesterday. It, as, as a professor, there's nothing more fun than be at a, a thesis defense and watch somebody do a fabulous job, which I did yesterday. So up front here, I want to talk about at least the, uh, some of the supporters of our work. Uh, we have a Boston University Superfund Research Program that's supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. I'm part of the Oral Cancer Research Initiative at BU. And I also want to give a special shout out to these guys, the Find the Cause Breast Cancer Foundation. This is a bunch of uh, primarily breast cancer survivors and their families and other people who have suffered the consequences of having uh, breast cancer. And uh, they tell me that every day they wake up wondering, why did I get this? It wasn't just bad luck. So what we've been doing is looking into environmental causes of breast cancer and other cancers, and there's probably a formidable contribution there. Uh, and they're just amazing people, hugely dedicated, and uh, you should be lucky enough to work with people like them. Well, uh, first a disclaimer, not everything about the AHR fits into a neat box, actually quite the opposite. I'm going to talk about several different types of cancer cell lines. Overall, what I'm going to tell you is true for all of them, but at any one specific part might not be quite right for all of the cancers, but I think the general just is about right. That was a disclaimer that you already heard that uh, Dr. Rojas uh, gave you. Um, that's my version of it. Now, when, I, when my kids were young, they're growing up now, they watched a lot of Sesame Street. I, I miss Sesame Street. Uh, you know, my favorite was the Swedish chefs. I, I, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't understand what they were saying. Uh, one of the games that they played a lot that I really enjoyed was this thing called one of the things, one of these things is not like the other. So I'm going to play this game with you guys and you identify what's not in common here. So first of all, this is dioxin that was uh, contaminating Agent Orange. 
this represents PCBs in the Sohegan River here in New Hampshire. It's a super fun site. The sediments are loaded with PCBs. Um, that's Dartmouth College. Uh, these are PM 2.5s. Those are essentially very small particles made up of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and other nasty things. Cigarette smoke and even uh, the vapors from electronic cigarettes. So if you have guessed Dartmouth, you are absolutely correct because the dioxanes contaminating the Rini uh, farm over here do not bind to the AHR. So I'm going to talk about the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. And here's essentially what it is. It's a schematic that shows that the AHR is a cytosolic protein, and it's most famously activated by environmental chemicals, but now we know that the microbiome produces uh, activators of the AHR, which is a whole other interesting subject I won't get into. Once it's activated, it translocates to the nucleus. It has all these associated factors, including coactivators, and it generates transcription of a lot of genes. But we're going to look at gene, one gene in particular called CYP1B1 as a marker for AHR activity. Now, the AHR has non-transcriptional activity. It binds to certain proteins. It's a U3 uh, ligase. Um, I'm not going to talk about all that stuff today. I'm going to go over here to the transcription part. So um, what I'm going to show you today is that cancers don't always need an environmental chemical to stimulate the AHR. And what happens when you do stimulate the AHR in the context I tell you about is what we call bad stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about these endogenous ligands that generate this constitutively active AHR activity and drive these cells crazy and do bad things in the immune system. So if nothing else, today's talk is going to be a little bit colorful, and you'll know where you are by the background here. The AHR circuit involves an amplification loop that drives chronic AHR activity in cancer. The second section will be about endogenous ligand-activated AHR that drives cancer aggression. Then we'll talk about the AHR as a likely immune checkpoint uh, regulator. And finally, if we have enough time, we'll get to the idea of cancer interception, which gets back to this prevention idea. So we're going to start with the AHR circuit involving amplification loop that drives chronic AHR activity. Now, if you look at the message level for AHR in a variety of different kinds of cancers, so this vertical line represents anything to the left is low or negative AHR expression. Everything to the right is getting there to high or very high. And notice that this is a log scale down here. And you see that most every cancer you look at has got high levels of expression of AHR. The guys in red here are just the ones that we've been studying most recently. Now, remember I showed you before that when the AHR is turned on, one of the genes that it uh, upregulates is this CYP1B1. So if you look at CYP1B1 expression in these cells, you'll also see upregulation of CYP1B1. Virtually every cancer you've seen, we published probably about 12 or 13 years ago an analysis of CYP1B1, and every kind of cancer we looked at had lots of CYP1B1, as if it were essentially a cancer biomarker. So this is the first suggestion that I'm going to show you today, that when you have upregulated AHR expression, you also have activity as defined by one of its target genes. If you look at the protein level, you see the same thing. So this is low to none, and anything above here is, yep, there's lots of AHR there. We've been studying uh, oral squamous cell carcinoma, uh, uh, lung cancer, melanoma, GI cancers, breast cancers, and uh, glioblastoma, and we're finding pretty much the same stuff I'm going to talk about. Now, I, I like to start lectures off with a slide that we did, like, last century. This was the beginning of everything that we, that we studied in the AHR. And what it is, it's a really terrible resolution, but there it is. This is the expression of AHR in a normal rat mammary gland. There's not much there. Some of the myoepithelial cells around the ducts have got some AHR, but it's, it's pretty low. But if you look at a tumor, a, a um, breast cancer, you see very high levels of AHR being expressed. And the arrows point to nuclear AHR, which means that the AHR is turned on by something. And in this situation, as far as we know, there's no environmental chemicals. So the message is there's something in here that's turning the AHR on. Uh, you then look for CYP1B1 because you'd expect that this target gene would be upregulated. And again, you see that it's very upregulated in, in human mammary tumor cells, the human ovarian tumor cells. Everything we looked at, it was upregulated. So the AHR is turned on. And it seems that whenever you see high levels of AHR, you see high levels of CYP1B1. Here's an analysis of that. If you look on a messenger RNA level, using the Broad Institute's cancer cell line encyclopedia, you find that when 1B1 goes up, you have AHR going up, or I probably should say it the other way around. When the receptor goes up, you have a lot of the target gene going up. If you go to the TCGA and you look at like 1,200 primary tumors, you get basically the same kind of trend. So when you have AHR, you have 1B1, you have activity, and you'll see that you have problems. You also can see this in lung cancers, and I'll show you this for a particular reason. This is a stain for uh, AHR in lung squamous cell carcinoma or in adenocarcinomas. 
And you can see, again, the nuclear expression of AHR in these tumors. Now, one of the things that's fun to look at is, well, does this make any difference in terms of survival? And any of you who have worked with uh, oncogenes know that when you look for some association between an oncogene expression and survival, you actually don't, need, you don't always see it. If you look at CMYK expression versus survival, the people who are low in CMYK don't always survive much better. So it's kind of, it's kind of wonky. But when you see a difference, it's meaningful. So since the resolution's not great, I will try to point out that these are lung cancer survivors and uh, these are lung cancer patients. And when AHR is high, they're pretty much dead by 15 years. But when AHR is low, you can't see this, it just goes straight out here, that they survive longer. And just for funsies, if you look at pancreatic cancer, this line here is the uh, survival of patients with high levels of AHR. And this line up here, where it's just flattened now, are the patients with low AHR. So this means that somebody with pancreatic cancer out seven years looks like they're on a plateau and they may be able to, um, to survive. So we think AHR is doing a lot of important things. Now, the AHR is hyper-expressed and hyper-activated. So the question is, well, what are these endogenous ligands? Sorry. Cool. That's okay. That's right. You turn it back on, everybody wakes up, you turn it off. It's great. Um, so there's been this search for these endogenous ligands. And it turns out AHR is insanely promiscuous. There's lots of things that it binds and is activated by. But right now, it looks like a major set of players are these tryptophan metabolites. So you have tryptophan, and the first enzyme that begins to break down tryptophan, the two enzymes are called keto and ido. These are dioxygenases. Now, the immunologists in the room, the immunotherapy people in the room, will recognize these as famous targets of various checkpoint inhibitors because they're thought of as immunosuppressive. And in a while, I'll show you why. So these uh, enzymes begin to metabolize tryptophan, and downstream, everybody in red turns out to be an AHR ligand. And we discovered cinnabarinic acid, and several other people have discovered these other uh, metabolites. Now, um, it looks like if there was enough tryptophan around, which there is uh, in most animals and tissue culture, and there's enough Tito around, that you're going to get some of these ligands. So he said, well, let's see if there's Tito or Ido in some of these tumor lines that we've, uh, we want to look at. These are uh, triple negative breast cancer. It's not a tumor line. It's a primary human cancer. It's a triple negative breast cancer and stain for AHR or for Tito in either the primary tumor or the metastases. And obviously, you can see that where there's AHR, there's also Tito being expressed. And if you look in the METs, actually, you see an even higher level of AHR and a higher level of nuclear AHR, which is sort of the theme I'm going to tell you today. That when the cells become more aggressive, the AHR gets even crazier. And you see Tito there as well. So it would make you suspect that with Tito there, or Ido in the case of some cancers, these cells would be making some of those AHR metabolites from tryptophan. So what we did then was to take tumor cell lines, and this happens to be a triple negative breast cancer, and to take lysates from these tumors and then do mass spectrometry to see if they are expressing any of these metabolites. And they, and they do, but I'm just going to show you kynurinin. And you can uh, quantify how much kynurinin there is in the lysates of these cells. So that's what's inside the cell itself at about 93 micromoles. So then the question is, is 93 micromoles enough to turn on the AHR? And obviously it is, or I wouldn't be showing you this stuff. So this is a titration of kynurinin. And what we're looking at here is a um, um, uh, immortalized but non-malignant mammary epithelial cell line that has relatively low AHR, so relatively low. And as you titer in the kynurinin, you can see this increase in what is AHR activity. It's a reporter assay basically based on CYP1A1 and CYP1B1. And you see this increase, and if you put an AHR inhibitor in here, that, that increase in activity essentially goes away. Now, if you look over here, you'll see that somewhere between 5 and 10 micromole of kynurinin is enough to activate the AHR, and these tumors within them have 93 micromoles. So they have more than enough to make the AHR go crazy in a chronic way. Now, uh, what we have then is this possibility, that this tryptophan around in the tumors if I say tumor, uh, as, as it's all mentioned, uh, you have to excuse me because it, it, is, it is my Worcester accent. So if anybody doesn't understand the word, I'll translate it into something like cancer. So that's easier for me. So tryptophan can be metabolized into kynurinin, and this kynurinin will activate uh, AHR, which is being expressed at high levels, a story for another day, and you get activation of the AHR. Now, in, in the immune system, people have shown that the HR can actually regulate expression of IDO or TIDO. And that suggests that there might be this positive amplification loop where the AHR is turning on enzymes required to generate 
all these metabolites. So we thought perhaps this was going on in the tumor as well. And we looked at a couple of, in this case, human cancer cell lines, triple negative and uh, oral cancer cell. And uh, what we did was to look for the amount of TITO2 in these tumor cell lines. And then we'd knock the AHR down using a doxycycline-inducible hairpin specific for the AHR. And you can see that when we turned on the SHAHR and we knocked the AHR down, we lost about uh, 55% of the TITO2 expression. If you use an inhibitor, it goes down even further. In this particular case, about 80%. And if just for variety, over here we're looking at IDO expression in the oral cancer cell line. This is the baseline level up here. And when you put in one of our first-generation AHR inhibitors, uh, it goes down significantly. And I'll tell you that cell lines tend to make either IDO or TITO, but primary tumors usually make both. So there seems to be this amplification loop where it is stimulating production of its own ligand and doing, and doing bad things, which we'll show in a few seconds. So the paradigm here is that we have AHR expressed at very high levels, and that will lead to an aggressive cancer, which I'll show you just in a couple of slides. And somehow or other, this AHR activity is stimulated. So let's say that you're exposed, even for a short period of time, to an environmental ligand or as Dr. Rojas showed us yesterday, a high-fat diet. Then you can envision that you've now activated the AHR so that you've started this cycle, this backward or this amplification loop. Once it's started, even when everything, when the original stimulus goes away, you get this upregulation of the enzymes and kynurin, and then you have this positive cycle. So that's one thing that can happen. Now, what I didn't tell you about yet is, of course, like most biologic systems, is a negative feedback loop just to make life more difficult. And there are a couple of things that actually downregulate AHR. There is an AHR repressor that actually is induced by uh, upregulation of AHR activity uh, that suppresses AHR activity. Now, this thing actually was described about uh, almost 10 years ago now as a tumor suppressor. Didn't know what it did, but it was described as a tumor suppressor. And you'll see that that makes sense because its, its job is to inhibit AHR, which does aggression. Unfortunately, in most cancers, particularly the more aggressive one, for some reason there's not a lot of H repressor being made when, even when AHR is turned on. The other negative feedback loop is AHR making CYP1B1 and CYP1A1. So these, again, are enzymes, and it turns out that they like to metabolize things like kynurinin. So even though AHR may be activated, up, it's upregulating 1B1, which is maybe digesting the kynurinin and sort of keeping a lid on things. So this is now getting to be something of a complicated pathway. And what I wanted to know was if you, if you perturb this pathway, can it reset itself at a higher or a lower level? In other words, what con controls how high this is? Because how high the circuit goes determines how aggressive the tumor is. So it's getting complicated, so what we did then was to go over to the Charles River campus at BU and talk to some of the computational biologists over there. And one guy in particular I talked to was Dan Segri, and you can tell that he's a computational guy because this whiteboard behind him has got all these funny figures with numbers and arrows and lots of stuff. And when I saw him, I said, what was that stuff? He said, I don't know, the, the photographer just made me write this stuff in the background and make it look good. <laughs> so I said, well... I, w I was convinced. So I asked Dan, you know, can you model this in some way? Can you estimate how long it takes for AHR to make 1A1 and 1B1? How much you're going to get with any given level of that, et cetera? And what he did was come up with a bunch of differential equations that visually looks like this. So I'm obviously not going to go into it, but you can find pathways. For example, you can estimate how long it takes for the AHR gene to be transcribed to produce AHR protein. And you can estimate about how much AHR protein is going to be made and once it's activated by a chemical, environmental chemical, how long it takes to get to the nucleus, et cetera. It's probably too small for any of you to read, but it factors in all these positive and negative influences. And it looks like this god-awful set of uh, differential equations like this, which I don't need to go into. I'm just going to tell you what Dan said was his prediction in the end. And what he said was that the HR activity will oscillate with the periodicity that varies depending on relative starting levels of the reactants. In other words, if you perturb this circuit pathway, wherever its baseline level is, what's going to happen is this ripple effect, and it's going to keep going up and down because of the positive and the negative feedback loops. And the other thing that he said was, it may be possible that the HR activity may reach a new steady state after perturbation. So the reason why this was important, we have sort of two takes on this. One is the environmental chemical take. So one of the issues with environmental chemicals and whether they cause cancer is that, you know, usually industry will say, well, it's, it's too low a concentration. It's an acute exposure. It's not going to do anything. 
But if you have this single low exposure to some environmental AHR ligand and it hits this pathway and then resets it at a higher level, well, then a small dose of something can actually have a big effect. And on the flip side, from the therapeutic point of view, if you're trying to produce AHR inhibitors to treat cancers, which is what we're trying to do, maybe you don't need a spectacular inhibitor. Maybe you only need to suppress this pathway for a little bit of time. The pathway goes down and stays down at a lower level. So just remember that the idea here is to determine whether or not this pathway will oscillate when we perturb it or whether it will hit a, a new steady state. So we did a very simple experiment, still sort of preliminary, but I think it, it's beginning to make sense. Um, what we did was we took a oral cancer cell line. This was provided by a collaborator from the Dana-Farber, Ravi Upalori. It's the only oral, mouse oral cancer um, model that doesn't involve transgenes in the world. It's, it's a very wonderful system. And what we did then was to drop in 100 micromole of kynurinate. So if you don't remember the titration curve, about 10 micromoles is enough to activate it. The tumor cells make between 25 and 95 micromoles. So this was at least doubling the amount of kynurinate. And then we looked for, on a message level, CYP1A1 and CYP1B1 expression. And what you see is that within a few hours, you get this transcription of CYP1A1, and then it sort of peaks and then comes down and then goes back up. So it starts oscillating, and it doesn't get back to zero. And right now, we're trying to extend this out a little bit further. But it certainly goes up before it comes down. Maybe it stays here. CYP1B1, which basically is driven by the same kind of transcriptional machinery, does the same thing. It goes up within about six to eight hours comes down and then oscillates a little bit and seems to sort of level off. Now, if you look at the message for the, uh, the one dioxygenase that this cell line makes, which is IDO1, so remember, when this goes up, it's going to make more uh, endogenous ligands. It's going to drive the AHR a little further. So what happens is it does this little funky decrease. I'm not sure that's real or not in the first couple of hours, but then it comes up. And interestingly, it comes up at a time when this is now beginning to oscillate up, meaning the AHR activity itself is beginning to oscillate uh, upward. And that may be due to the fact that IDO here is now making endogenous ligands and driving this. Meanwhile, in a negative feedback part of it, the AHR repressor, it sort of comes up quickly because it, you know, it, it, it's activated by the AHR, but then comes down. And during that period, you get this peak. And then it comes up again. And as it comes up again, you get this sort of decrease, which is about what you'd expect in AHR activity if this were repressing it. And then it started goes, then it's, it seems to go down and just stay down. And it stays here, and as it's, as it's decreasing, the activity of the AHR, as measured by 1A1 and 1B1, starts coming back up and maybe leveling off. In other words, this sort of makes sense. When the positive part of the signal uh, goes up, you get this outcome where you have increased activity in CYP1A1 and CYP1B1. When you have repressor going up or coming down, you have the reciprocal effects. So it looks like this is possible that you actually can change the steady state level of this cycle, and that's good if you want to try to inhibit the HR in cancer. So I'll go into the second part, which is that constitutively active AHR does bad stuff. Uh, and I'll show you migration and metastasis and why it's important the HR is constitutively active. This is a picture of a couple of very aggressive uh, triple negative human breast cancer cell lines, BP1, and this guy, everybody knows, MDA, MB231, but this one actually is an isolate from a bone metastasis. So it's nasty. This picture was taken within about two days. This one is about four days or so. So these guys, they will dive down into this matrigel. They'll digest the matrigel. They start growing ugly like really aggressive tumors. But if you add in an HR inhibitor that we developed, they don't do that. They just form these nice round tumors. If this were a tumor in vivo, you'd think you just pluck it out by some surgeon, and then you're in good shape. And the same thing is true of these very aggressive cells. Now, I'll tell you right now that there's nothing that we've ever done, either inhibiting the AHR or knocking it out with CRISPR or activating it with chemicals, that has ever affected the viability of these cells. It's not about cell death. And nothing that we've ever done has ever affected proliferation of these cells. It's not about cell growth. It's about the ability to form these colonies or dive down into the matrigel, or it's about what, are, what the other uh, functional parameters are we're testing. So here's another parameter of migration, and the bottom line is that the AHR drives migration. This is a simple scratch wound assay where you put these tumor cells, and these are, again, the oral cancer cells, out on a plate until you form a confluent layer, and you take a pipette, very high-tech, and you scratch it right across the middle, and then these cells will start growing across. You see these very epithelial-like cells, but as they start growing across, they become very you know, stretch out mesenchymal-like, 
And they're not growing. We can show that they're not growing, but they are migrating across. So they know there's a wound here, and they're moving across. If you take a construct that we got from a colleague in Japan of a constitutively active AHR, so this guy doesn't even need any endogenous ligand. He's screaming. He's on all the time. You can't turn him off. You can't make it go any higher. You put that guy into, into these lines, and it heals the wound really very, very quickly. Uh, reciprocally, if you do a CRISPR knockout of the AHR, you see this very wide uh, space after 24 hours. So the migration has slowed down, and we can quantitate that and show that it's all statistically significant. Uh, then you take the AHR knockouts, and you put the constitutively active AHR in here, and it just starts growing back again. In other words, the AHR is driving migration, and it's sort of uh, proportional to the level of AHR activity that you see. Now, what about metastasis? Uh, you know, I'm kind of an impatient guy, and it's a kind of a difficult experiment to do metastasis in, in mouse models. So we went to a zebrafish model, which we thought was very cool. It's about 24 hours long. And what we did there was to take the zebrafish embryos, and you inject into this perivitellin sac uh, uh, RFP, a red fluorescent protein labeled MB231, so a triple negative breast cancer, HSC3, that's a human oral cancer, or famous healer cells. And you wait about 24 hours, and you see these metastases down in the tail, and you can count the metastases. And we know this is a real metastasis because you can do this uh, fun experiment, zebrafish, where you make the vessels green and you follow the tumor cells, and you can see them going through the vessels. You can see them getting into the vessels, uh, going through the vessels, and extravasating into the tissue around them. And all this happens within 24 hours. So it's a, it's a great assay. Not a mammal, but still. Then, if you add in one of our inhibitors or one that you can obtain commercially, you get nothing. You get bupkis out here. There's no metastases whatsoever. And this is the, um, the uh, quantification of that. So the AHR, at least for these kinds of cell lines in this model, seems to be driving aggression, invasion, migration, and metastasis. Now, are there genes that are responsible for that? So what we did was to take a couple of different uh, tumor cell lines, and this, this was done with triple negative breast cancers. And we CRISPR'd out the AHR, and we looked for a differential expression. And we find a bunch of genes that do change. So E-cadherin actually goes up when you knock the AHR down. And fibronectin goes down when you knock out the AHR. Now, these two things, not the only markers, but they are two good markers for epithelial to mesenchymal transition. And the disclaimer here is I'm not really sure what this EMT really is. I just tell you these cells look mesenchymal or not look mesenchymal, and they have certain genomic uh, uh, profiles. When e-cadherin is up, the cells are a little bit more quiet. They're rounder, they're epithelial-like. When fibronectin goes up, they become more mesenchymal. So what we're showing here is that knocking the AHR down sort of flipped things around. So now you've got these cells looking less aggressive in terms of this gene expression and less aggressive in terms of the loss of fibronectin 1. Now all these other guys down here that go down when you knock the HR down are also associated with a mesenchymal transition. <clears throat> now, I just want to call your attention to ECAD and fibronectin here. Remember, ECAD goes up when you knock the AHR down. So this is a couple of cell lines. We wanted to see, is this generalizable to other cell lines and then eventually to primary cancers? So what we did then was to do some computational biology, go back to the cancer cell line encyclopedia from the Broad, and ask the following questions. If you look at the relative level of AHR gene expression in about 50 different uh, triple negative breast cancers. And then compare expression of that AHR versus that whole set of genes that I just showed you on this previous slide, right there. Do you see an association? It's the gene set enrichment analysis. And when this curve is shifted to the left, it means that there's a positive correlation between the AHR and that set of genes that marks uh, an EMT transition. Now, the one outlier out here is CDH1. E-cadherin. So you remember from the last one, E-cadherin was the one guy that went up when you knocked the HR down. So that makes perfect sense. The HR, uh, CDH1 is not associated with high levels of HR. If you go over here for the CYP1B1, so now we're looking for HR activity, again, you see the statistically significant association between 1B1 expression and the set of genes, with the one outlier being, again, E-cadherin. Okay, so that's fine for cell lines. What about primary cancers? So we went to the TCGA. And we looked at, uh, I think it's something like 50 triple negative breast cancers, did the same kind of analysis and showed that AHR expression is associated with that set of genes being expressed, that set of mesenchymal aggression-related uh, <laughs> genes, 
with the non-expression exception being the uh, the uh, ECAD here and ECAD here and over here when looking for uh, CYP1B1 activity. So this seems to be generalizable that when the HR is up, you get these mesenchymal really aggressive genes turned on. Now, other bad stuff that the HR does includes generating these stem-like cells. Now, I'm, again, I'm going to put the disclaimer up that we can talk about how you define cancer stem cells. Just for ease, I'm just going to call them cancer stem cells. So one thing we found was that if you take, uh, these are oral squamous cell carcinoma, human oral squamous cell carcinoma, you put them in these low adherence cultures, uh, if they form tumors under these particular conditions, it means that there is a single stem cell within each one of these colonies that gives rise to progenitor cells that, that uh, compile the, the bulk of the tumor. So this is like a, basically a clonal assay. And if you put in AHR inhibitors, you have, if you look hard, you see the same number of colonies, but they're much smaller. And if you pull them out and count the cells, you see they're fine. They're, they're viable. They're just not turning into these giant uh, tumors. They're just stem cells kind of sitting there. And we think that's because the inhibition of the AHR prevents them, prevents the stem cells from differentiating into progenitor cells that form the bulk of the tumor. So that's a good thing. Now, another measure, maybe the ultimate measure, of whether a cell is a cancer stem cell is its ability to initiate tumors. So the classic way to do this experiment is you take cells that you think are cancer stem cells and you titrate them into a recipient and see how efficient they are in inducing or generating these cancers. So here's the experiment. In this case, is an inflammatory breast cancer, which is the worst of the worst. The 50-year survival for inflammatory breast cancer is something like two years. Not good. Uh, and we put in it a doxycycline-inducible SHAHR, so we could knock the HR down whenever we wanted in some 149 cells. And then we use flow cytometry to sort them based on expression of this enzyme that has been associated with the cancer stem cells. So for now, you can think of this as a cancer stem cell marker. So we sorted out cells that we thought were cancer stem cells and the guys that we thought were not cancer stem cells, and then titered them into an orthotopic tumor transplant. So this is transplant into the mammary fat pad of... Uh, um, of um, uh, immune-compromised mice and then measured tumor growth. So here's the titration, 10,000 cells, 5,000 cells, 2,500 cells. And on the left is when we took these two populations, so the cancer stem cells here and the non-cancer stem cells there, under two conditions, no doxycycline, so plenty of AHR, and plus doxycycline, you knock the AHR down. So the first uh, comparison you do is right here, where you find that the cells that we thought were stem-like are, in fact, 100% efficient at forming tumors in mice when you put in 10,000 cells into the mammary fat pad. At 5,000, it's still pretty good. At 2,500, you still get tumors. On the other hand, if you take these guys, the ALDH low, non-cancer stem cells, even with 10,000, only about, uh, well, it looks like 10%, 15, 20% or so of the mice generate tumors. At this level, it's also really quite decreased from the relative to the uh, cancer-like stem cells, and if you transfer in just 2,500 cells, you don't get anybody growing. So, in fact, these are sort of cancer, well, let me say that functionally they're tumor-initiating cells, which is what you expect. Now you turn the AHR on with some doxycycline, we turn on the SHAHR, so it knocks the AHR down with doxycycline, and you find the only thing that grows is the highest concentration of the ALDH high cells. So what that tells us is that the AHR is, control, is controlling tumor-initiating ability and is doing it even in cells that look like they're cancer stem cells. And actually, if you sort these cells out, you find that cells that have high LDH also have much more AHR in them and much more CYP1B1. So the AHR tends to be the stem cell um, marker. I'll skip that guy. Now, uh, what genes are actually involved in driving this um, phenotype a functional phenotype of cancer stem cells. We did a genetic analysis, a, you know, microarrays, and this time what we did is we took these non-cancer stem cells, so these are the ALDH low, if, you're, if you care, or the cancer stem cells, and we gave them one of these kind of funky AHR ligands called FICZ. Not really important what it is or what it does, other than it's an AHR agonist. And then we looked for a whole bunch of genes to see if we could increase the baseline level by giving this FICZ. So we did this first in the cells that were non-cancer stem cells, and again, this is now in triple negative breast cancers, human triple negative breast cancers. And these are like the big boys of stemness. It's like NOTCH1, BMI1, NANOG, NOTCH2, OCT4, SOX2, DPPA3. I mean, these two guys, SOX2 and OCT4, 
are two of the four Yamanaka factors. So these are major players in generating stemness, which in part allows these cells to um, not die in the presence of chemotherapy. So the one exception here was this guy, Musashi. Now, um, when we took the cancer stem cells, the guys that already had high LDH and tried to blast them with a little more AHR stimulus, they went up as well. So you again, let's say OCT4 and SOX2 also go up. Okay, now notice the, the one guy who didn't go up, which actually made us feel good because it was getting a little creepy, the, the genes we were looking at that we expected might have something to do with stemness, all of them were going up. One guy who didn't was this guy, Musashi. So we did then the gene set enrichment analysis, just like we, used, well, like we did for the migration metastasis assay, and we looked for association between AHR, messenger RNA, and this set of genes, sorry, and this set of genes down here to see if in the cancer cell line encyclopedia, now this is more than 50 lines in cancer cell line encyclopedia, if there was an association between those, that gene set that characterized stemness driven by the AHR would be associated with higher AHR expression, and it is with the exception of Musashi, which is the one guy who didn't go up in our system. Then you look at CYP1B1 as a marker for AHR activity, and again, it's everybody shifted to the left here, which means that when you see high levels of AHR activity, you also get an association or an increase in these genes associated with stemness in these 50 cell lines. And of course, you know the punchline that's coming is you now go to the, the TCGA, you look at over 1,200 tumors, you do that analysis between AHR expression and the stem, uh, the, uh, stem cell genes, and you see this positive association, except for Musashi, which we did not see go up in the cell lines. And again, for CYP1B1 is a marker of AHR activity, a strong association with these stem cell-associated genes, with the one guy not responding or not associated with CYP1B1 being Musashi. Okay, so now what I've told you is that there's a constitutively, constitutively active AHR signaling pathway. It does at least some bad stuff. It increases migration, invasion, metastasis. It's bad. Uh, and what I just showed you is it also increases stemness. Now, I could have shown you a couple of pictures that demonstrate that the cells that the AHR uh, is most prevalent in, and when you activate those cells even higher with AHR ligands, these cells do all kinds of things that are like stem cells. In other words, you, just, you almost can't kill them, so they're really nasty. Now let's get to the immune checkpoint part. I mean, everybody I'm sure has heard about this. It's such buzz stuff. You can't not hear about immune checkpoint regulators. So one of our, one of our theories is that the HR is, in fact, an HR immune checkpoint regulator. And here's, here's why. Here's the malignant cell. I, I showed you our circuit here, that positive amplification gets this aggression. Now remember the very beginning I said some of the uh, oncologists here will be familiar with IDO and TIDO because they are thought of, thought of as immune checkpoint regulators. They're immunosuppressive. So if you take inhibitors to these things, you can expect, but not always see, that you have this decrease in immunosuppression and increase in immunoenhancement. Um, but there's another possibility here, which is that there are these regulatory T cells and tumor-associated macrophages, which can be immunosuppressive, and myeloid-derived suppressor cells that can contribute to immunosuppression in cancer and they all expressed modest levels of AHR, which means that while the tumor is busy making lots of kynurenin for itself, it's probably spitting out lots of kynurenin in the microenvironment, and it could skew T cells towards Tregs, towards TAMs, uh, macrophages that are immunosuppressive, and towards MDSC. So basically, this is going on at the same time this is going on. So we tested this possibility by... Um, uh, by first looking to see if we could associate AHR expression, or at least AHR activity, with tumor-associated macrophages using the TCGA. So any of the graduate students that are out here, I can tell you that rather than do an experiment that takes a year or a year and a half, and maybe it comes out, have some computational biologists look first, because they will come back within about 20 minutes and tell you, yeah, you're on the right path, or no, forget it, you should, you know, Quit graduate school. Let's come up with another idea. No, don't quit graduate school. Come up with another idea. So the first thing we did then was to see if we could associate AHR activity with uh, influx of tumor-associated macrophages. And I'll show you the way we did this, and it just takes a second to explain it. First, we looked at AHR activity. So this is all TCGA data. So what, how do we define TC, um, AHR activity? We defined it as that 644 gene set that went down in a couple of triple negative breast cancers when we crispered out the AHR. So these were genes that the AHR was driving. 
just in those cells. So, you know, we even cross different tumor types. You take those 644 genes and you say, okay, um, those represent AHR activity, so we can plot relative level of a gene expression of those 644 genes uh, along the x-axis. Now, let's plot it versus macrophage infiltration. Again, this is all TCGA data. Now, macrophage infiltration can be determined fairly easily uh, by profile, by a genomic profile, transcriptomic profile of macrophages. You can ask any computational guy to go into a TCGA database, look for a set of like 20 macrophage-associated genes, and that will tell you how much infiltration you have of the max. So what you can see here is that there's a strong correlation between the level of AHR activity and influx of macrophages. This happens to be oral squamous cell carcinoma. So AHR goes up, AHR activity goes up, and up goes this infiltration of uh, macrophages. So we started to try to investigate this uh, in, in vitro and then eventually in vivo to see if this was, if we had a model system that could recapitulate that. So the way to determine whether or not the AHR that seems to be associated with tumor macrophage, or macrophage infiltration in the tumors to see if it is involved actually in any function of these macrophages was to take conditional knockout mice that have the AHR knocked out of just macrophages. And you do that with the lysozyme promoter. So in these conditional knockout mice, everything's normal except max don't have AHR. And if you take those max out, they actually look normal. They phagocytose. They stick to plates. They present the antigen fine. They look fine. They just don't have AHR. So then the question was, in a recipient where the macrophages don't have AHR, if that's required to generate uh, M2-like tumor-associated macrophages, then you should get less growth of a cancer in the mice that don't have AHR in the macrophage. And that's, oh, sorry, in vitro. We'll come back to that in a second. This is an in vitro assay first, right? So what we did here was to take uh, bone marrow-derived macrophages from the uh, mice that have max, uh, AHR knocked out of the macrophages, and then we looked at levels of things that are required for these macrophages to migrate to the tumor. So what I just showed you just before that was that AHR activity is associated with migration of tumors in all those, cell, in all those tumors. So what you can see here is that macrophages that lack AHR uh, have less CCR2 messenger RNA. And CCR2 is a receptor for chemokines, and it's absolutely required for these cells to, to migrate to the tumor. So you have less message of CCR2 in the AHR knockout macrophages, and you have less or a lower percentage of cells that are CCR2 positive here, significantly decreased. So that suggests that the, the macrophages won't be able to even get to the tumor to suppress the immune system there. So we did some migration assays, and what we did was to take these bone marrow-derived macrophages from either wild-type mice or from the um, AHR macrophage knockout mice and see if they can migrate towards CCL2. And I should say this experiment was actually just uh, this week now going to be published in uh, Nature Neuroscience. It was done with... Um, uh, Francisco Quintana at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. So if you put CCL2 in here, that's the chemokine to which CCR2 migrates. You see really good migration here in the controls, but the uh, cells that have got uh, AHR inhibitor in there don't migrate so well. If you do the experiment in wild type versus AHR knockout in the macrophages, they almost don't, don't migrate at all. So what that means is that you need the AHR in these macrophages to express CCR2 in order for those cells to migrate to the tumor. So then we've got this first part where it looks like there's an effect on, on the macrophages. Now, migration is only part of it, and I've been sort of loosely referring to these as M2 immunosuppressive macrophages, but you've got to show that they have some characteristic of M2 macrophages. And we did this by taking the bone marrow-derived uh, max uh, and stimulating them with kynurinin, so HR endogenous HR ligand, and then we measured by uh, nanostring expression of several genes associated with immunosuppressive macrophages, naming KLL4, PPAR gamma, CD2, CD274, NPD1, we'll come back to him in a few seconds, and IL27. So in each case, you can, say, you can see that kynurinin induces expression of that gene, so KLF4 here, PPAR gamma here, and that when you put inhibitor in, HR inhibitor, you knock down the induction of these genes associated with M2-like macrophages. Here's CD74 going up and then coming down with inhibitor. Now, here's NPD1. That's also known as CD39. Come back to that one second. That goes up, and uh, in the presence of inhibitor, it comes back down. And the final one, obviously, 
IL-27 goes up, and it comes back down with the HR inhibitor. This is CYP-181, which is our positive control. Now, this was actually very cool because uh, NPD-1 encodes CD-39. CD-39 is an immunosuppressive molecule. It's an uh, ectoenzyme, which in the presence of another ectoenzyme called CD-73, it could be on macrophages, usually on macrophages, or it could be on T cells sometimes and sometimes even cancer cells. These two uh, enzymes together will metabolize uh, ATP into adenosine. Adenosine is a major immunosuppressive molecule. It shuts down the activity of the good dendritic cells, CD4 helper cells, NK cells, and um, what would that be? That would probably be killer T cells. That's, yeah, it's probably CD8 killer T cells. So it shuts these, these guys down, and about the same, in the same way, it activates induction or induces these immunosuppressive cells. So this will be uh, tumor-associated macrophages, those are TAMs, regulatory T cells, and MDSC. So these are exactly the three populations I've been talking about to this point. Having CD39 uh, or uh, NPD there means that we're now getting some of this adenosine and that's how at least part of the immunosuppression happens. There are many companies that are out there looking for adenosine receptor inhibitors as checkpoint inhibitors, but now we know the AHR probably regulates that stuff. Okay, so all that stuff is actually in vitro, in vitro. So let's go in vivo and see what happens. So now, in fact, we go, we go to these um, uh, AHR lice and mice, the mice that have the AHR deleted from macrophages. So let's look down here. Here's our pathway. What we're going to try to do is just take these guys out, take out the AHR from the tumor-associated macrophages, and see how tumors grow. And the tumors that were used here were the oral cancer cells. So here is the growth uh, over about 40 days, and here is their growth if you take those cells and put them in an animal that has no AHR in its macrophages. In other words, you've taken away this immune uh, checkpoint regulator, and you've gotten an improved outcome. And then you start phenotyping for macrophages or, or other types of cells. What I'm going to show you up here is just the CD4, the, um, the T cell compartment. What you see is that in the AHR lysome mice, so no macrophages with no AHR, uh, within the tumor and draining lymph nodes, you have an increase in CD4, you have an increase in CD8 cells, you have a decrease in FOXB3 cells, a decrease in CD39 positive cells. Again, this by itself is immunosuppressive. A decrease in cells in a marker that um, is associated with exhausted T cells, so CTLA-4 goes down. PD-1, clearly an immune checkpoint regulated, goes down significantly. And LAG-3, another marker of exhausted T cells, goes down. So you just take AHR away from the macrophages, and then the immune profile looks a lot better, like it's immune enhanced. Now, my students, whenever we design these experiments, and I give them, like, you know, a kinetics experiment or experiment that requires about, you know, 50 or 60 mice, I look at them, I go, you guys up for that? And they go, well, let's go big or go home. I never know exactly what that means, but I follow whatever they do. And what they said was, look, while we're waiting to make cells, we're doing conditional knockouts that have AHR deleted from the myeloid-derived suppressor cells uh, or deleted from Tregs to see what the role of these two things are. While we're waiting, why don't we take our tumor cells? We have CRISPR knockout tumor cells. Let's put them in mice. And what should happen is that you won't get this pathway, and maybe you get less aggression, but you also won't get this part. So you'll be able to knock all these guys off at the same time, and you should see a, a reasonable effect. So here's the result of that experiment. These, again, are, happen to be oral cancer cell lines in mice. Here's the growth of the wild type. Here's the growth of the tumor cells that don't have any AHR. Now, in vitro, they grow perfectly normally. They don't die. That's why I said you can't mess with the AHR, or at least we can, and get it to die or to get the cells to uh, grow any faster. So this is not about proliferation, but it could be about stemness. Right? I showed you that they had to have stem cell quality in order to form tumors in the recipient mice. So this could be, well, we've knocked the AHR down. It doesn't do any of this stuff. This aggression parameter really means stem cells, and it's not, you know, they're not growing. Okay, that's one thing. But we watched these, cell, these mice for about six months, and they never grew any tumors, so nothing happened. So we had them in six months. We said, oh, I think we get the idea. There's not going to be a tumor here. Let's see if they're immune. So we then took the wild-type tumor and put it right back. And this, again, is an orthotopic transplant, so it goes into the tongue of the mice. So we took the wild-type, we put it into the tongue of the mice, where it should have grown like that, except for when you put it into the tongues of mice that have seen the AHR knockout cells before, you get zippo. You get absolutely nothing. So these mice, under these conditions, are completely immune to a wild-type, uh, very aggressive tumor. 
And then I'll show you some of the immunophenotyping. You look at macrophages, you see that in the um, HR, not, when you use the HR knockout tumor cells, the draining lymph nodes around the tumors have a decrease in these macrophages. They have a decrease in MDSCGs at the same time. And the T cells follow suit. So you get this decrease in FOXP3 positive, probably regulatory T cells. You have this decrease in cells, probably also regulatory T cells, but maybe regulating through CD39. You get a decrease in exhausted markers like CTLA4, LAG, LAG3. You see a decrease in PD1. And you see an increase of CD8, as you've shown here, and also an increase in CD4 positive cells. So it looks like we're able to affect all these things. We're not sure yet whether they really are functionally making this mouse immune, but clearly these mice are immune. We've done this about seven different ways, and that's what happens all the time. So therapeutically, the idea would be, let's see if we can recapitulate this with some kind of AHR inhibitor. So we've generated first and second AHR inhibitors, and we've put them into many of these systems. This happens to be the Mach 1 um, uh, system. And if you put in our inhibitor called HP163, you expect it to block this part, the aggression, and to block the immune system part as well. And what you see is a pretty you know, modest but significant decrease in cell growth, very consistently seen over long periods of time. And if you do the immunophenotyping, again, you get a decrease in macrophages. Now, in this case, we were looking at CCR2-positive macrophages. So if you remember from the in vitro experiments, I showed you that CCR2 is regulated by the AHR, and without CCR2, these cells don't really want to migrate to the, uh, to the tumor. So that goes down. And the MFI, meaning the amount of CCR2 per cell, also goes down. And if you look then at the myeloid-derived suppressor cells, or the guys you think are myeloid-derived suppressor cells, you get this decrease again in CCR2 expression at DC and a, and a decrease on a per-cell basis. So it looks like what we showed in vitro, which was the HR is controlling the ability of these cells to migrate to into the tumor, might actually be happening in real life. Now, we've used these inhibitors in all kinds of different conditions. This is our first-generation inhibitor. Down here is our second-generation inhibitor. We've done glioblastoma, breast carcinoma, B16 melanoma. These are the data I just showed you on the oral cancer cells. Uh, and we've given the drug IP, IP. Sometimes we get kind of fanciful with the subcutaneous tissue uh, injections. So the orthotopics, we go IP and topical. This is a B16 melanoma, which is subcutaneous, so we just put the drug on top of the skin. All of these things inhibit growth of the tumor in a relatively, in a significant way. And some of this is immune. We're fairly certain, although I don't have time to show you the data. But some of it probably is the inhibitors are slowing down stem this or slowing down some part of the tumor that, doesn't, that um, prevents it from growing out. This is an experiment which we took an oral human cancer and put it into an immunocompromised mouse, so no immune component here whatsoever. When you put in the first-generation inhibitor, you get approval of survival. So it's sort of a nipping around the edges. I think that these inhibitors have a really good chance of working. I'm not sure we've got the optimal ones yet, but we're still going to work towards that. So some of, these, some of the characteristics of one of our inhibitors, we know it's a competitive inhibitor. It goes into the binding site of the HR. We can model that. And it displaces other um, uh, ligands like kynurin and other endogenous ligands. No toxicity up to 300 mg per kg per day in mice and rats, so seems to be all right, well tolerated. The IC50 is about 300 nanomole. It's not spectacular for a drug, but it's not toxic, so we could probably go to those levels. Negative in a, uh, in a HERG assay, this is a cardiotoxicity assay. Uh, negative in a CREP diversity panel, this is a commercial. Uh, analysis of binding of your, your drug to 71 nuclear receptors or surface receptors or pathway receptors, nothing happens. It doesn't bind any of those or 27 uh, different enzymes. So it looks like it's pretty specific for AHR. 50% bioavailability, so half of it gets absorbed, however you give it. 25% goes into the, uh, into the brain, which is important because uh, most of the antibodies, is a little bit controversial, but the antibodies that are checkpoint inhibitors probably don't get into the brain until the blood-brain barrier is pretty well screwed up. But this gets in there, which is probably why it seemed to work in the glioblastomas. And we're now testing this. This is the obvious thing for these kinds of uh, checkpoint inhibitors, testing them for synergy with other immune checkpoint inhibitors. So finally, um, I'll spend <clears throat> just a couple minutes, one minute, one or two minutes here on this idea of intercepting the HR. Remember I told you at the very beginning, I'm working with the Find the Cause Breast Cancer Foundation, and we really want to be able to prevent cancers from happening, at least know when they're about to happen. So one of the uh, observations we made 
again, this is kind of fun for me because this was like, mm, the experiment was done 20 years ago. And the experiment is you take uh, rats and you give them a single dose of DMBA, which is a chemical carcinogen. Within two or three days, the DMBA gets metabolized, it's gone, and then you wait 15 weeks or so, uh, 15 to 20 weeks, and you start seeing preferentially mammary tumors. But when we started looking at these, these um, uh, rats, at various times before you get overt tumor formation, so at 15 weeks, uh, nine weeks here, right? Tumors don't happen at least till 15 to 20. At nine weeks, you pull out mammary glands, you don't see any dysplasia, you don't see hyperplasia, you don't see any tumors, you don't see anything. But you see upregulation of AHR, and you see upregulation of CYP1B1. And what that suggests to us is that this pathway gets upregulated in kind of a field effect, and you're getting 1B1 going up in this kind of a field effect. And if at this point all these other immunologic things are going on, this is the time when you want to treat with some of these uh, AHR inhibitors. I won't have time to talk about it, but in some of the cancers we're looking at, like lung cancer, we're working with people who are generating these precancer genome atlases, which means that they're trying to identify a set of genes, not a couple of genes like this, that they can uh, track in people who may be at risk for converting to full-blown cancer. And if they can find those kinds of biomarkers, they can define a precancerous state even before dysplasia, that's when you start giving immune checkpoint inhibitors or maybe AHR inhibitors. So I'll skip that part. And I'll tell you the conclusions are, an AHR circuit involving an amplification loop drives chronic AHR activity. Endogenous ligand activated AHR drives cancer aggression. The AHR is likely an immune checkpoint regulator. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if we want to qualify it as that. And AHR inhibitors may be able to intercept the AHR signaling pathway prior to overt malignancy. The last thing I'm going to do is show you what I think is the state of the science. This is a... 1964 Chrysler New Yorker with big fins. When I was a kid, my father, one day, you know, we didn't, we, <laughs> I thought we were poor, and one day he comes home with this brand new New Yorker. It was just fabulous. It had fins. You could put your arms on it while you're riding along. The older people are smiling because they remember this stuff. And the entertainment back then was he would pile a family into the car and we all go for a drive. And somehow that was fun. I mean, if you think about doing that now with your kids, it's like, yeah, no, you, you hope they fall asleep maybe. But my father had this routine. The routine my father did every time was he'd say, I got good news and I got bad news. And we all played along and go, what's the bad news, Dad? He'd say, we're lost. Dad, what's the good news? Well, we're making good time. <laughs> That's what I feel about the AHR. I'm not sure where it's going, but it's moving really very quickly. And I want to finish with just acknowledging the people that have done this work. This is Jan Wong, who's done all the molecular stuff. And over here is a fabulous graduate student. Jessica Kennison-White, who's done all of those uh, phenotyping. Our work is done in collaboration with Fran Quintana over at Harvard, Brigham Women Hospital, and uh, Maisa uh, Takanaka, who did a lot of those in vitro experiments I showed you. Stefano Monti is my bioinformation computational. He's way more than a bioinformatician. He just comes up with these incredibly um, creative ways of analyzing data. Sarah Mazzilli is working on the precancer genome atlas in lung cancer, and uh, we'll be doing a lot more with her. And I mentioned the Dan Segre and his lab with the computational stuff on how the, the circuit goes up and goes down. And again, I want to acknowledge the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and all the good people at to find the cause. We're trying really hard to find ways to prevent cancer. And I'll stop right there. Thanks very much. Yeah, so we haven't got, done exactly that experiment, which is wait for the metastasis and do it. Unless you define, the experiment we have done is uh, left ventricle injection of triple negative breast cancer. And if you say at that moment you have metastases, at that moment we wait like two days and then give the inhibitor and that will block some of the metastasis. So, or it will, it will block detection of the metastases. So I'm not sure if that's actually blocking metastases, whether they're still circulating or whether they've already found the home very shortly and that the inhibitor is now acting on metastatic lesions. But I hope so. So 
So the first one is um, uh, T cells, macrophages, uh, monocytes in general, dendritic cells have you know low level, whatever you want to call that. So it's an order of mag. It's like it's like 20 times lower than the tumor cell on a on a protein level. It's actually 50 times lower on a messenger RNA a level, unless those cells are skewed towards Th17s, which, which express inflammatory cells express much more AHR, or towards regulatory T cells, which express much more AHR. So that's upregulated when they turn to the bad guys, the immunosuppressive ones. The second generation AHR inhibitor has a half-life in the plasma of about two and a half hours. The first one, CB799, which worked in vivo, it turned out its half-life in plasma was about 20 minutes. So I think it's not about it's circulating the plasma. These things are lipophilic. I think they're just getting caught up in the organs and hopefully in the right organ. And they're working over a period of time or else we never would have seen an effect in vivo. And we, and we are. Yeah. Are there any autoimmune phenotypes in knockouts, or do you see them? No, but that's obviously the flip side of the AHR coin. Um, the there are AHR knockout mice, uh, and it took uh, three or four years before anybody really found any significant phenotype. But the phenotype is not autoimmunity. If you wait until they're like two years old and end of your life, you start seeing some autoantibodies, but you don't see any disease. So knocking it out doesn't doesn't induce that. Flip side is, though, that we're working like Fran Quintana is looking at models of MS and diabetes and other autoimmune diseases using AHR agonists that are inducing the immunosuppressive cells, and they, in his system, they're fabulous. So, good question. Well, thank you. Okay. Thanks very much.